everybody. Welcome to the September 8th, 2017 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Patricia Calhoun, filling in for Dominic Dizzuti. He'll be returning next Friday and not a moment too soon. Thank you for joining us tonight. Let's get a quick take on the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce vowing to pursue a ballot initiative in 2018 that would address Colorado's transportation needs. The announcement was made at the annual meeting for the 150th anniversary of the chamber. Natasha Gardner, articles editor from 5280, do we think this is necessary and will it make it in 2018? Well, I think what's interesting is that they're taking up this issue that failed pretty miserably at the state legislature. But I don't think you can find many people in Denver who would disagree that transportation is a topic we need to address. So I think we'll see, you know, this group and other groups kind of pick up the rallying cry of what do we do next? I mean, I think anyone who's been in, in particularly downtown Denver, it feels like a bad 80s action film. You get stuck in these one lane streets and can't escape from downtown anymore. But beyond that, we have bigger questions about affordable housing. We have about what we use our streets for. Are they for roads? Are they for bikes? Are they for people? Are they for public transportation? Can we do all these things? So I like that a group in Denver is taking the lead on continuing that conversation. But I, unfortunately, I don't think a quick answer um, is around the corner. And joining the table for the first time, Roger Hudson in David Kopel's seat. Yes. Taking his seat, but we hope not the same amount of time. <laughs> You're a political consultant. How do you think this is going to fare next year? You know, I, I just don't know that, um, that Denver and this group in particular can pull this off on their own. They need some real good partners, and we've not found that at the Capitol. Uh, we've not been able to solve transportation there. We've not been able to collaborate on a lot of the issues that are going to be talked about here, housing in particular. Um, they need a really good partner, not just money, but they need a partner. Um, and I don't know that they've got that currently. I think they need to do some real work behind the scenes. Eric Sonderman, back at the table, a political consultant. Are you going to be a partner on this project? I'm not. I think those days are in my past, <laughs> although with the money they're talking about, maybe the past should be present again. Uh, I think the devil's always in the details here. It's one thing to announce the intent to pursue a ballot initiative. There, there's huge consensus around the state as to the need. There's not consensus on how you fund it. And uh, the question is, what's the package they come together? I do think there will be support in the legislature for referring this to the voters. I think the legislature has decided, with some bipartisanship, that this is going to the voters likely in 2018. But again, what is the mix of taxes that they're going for in a pretty anti-tax moment that we're going through? And rounding out the table, Justine Sandoval, community activist. Will people go for this in 2018? I definitely think so. I was disappointed that the legislature couldn't get this bill passed. There was a lot of bipartisan support for it. And like anyone would know who's commuted in the last, you know, year, two years, Colorado is really facing a transportation issue, especially in Denver as we become more congested. So I would think that taking this question to the voters, um, they would definitely get the response that they wanted. A lot of times I think that 
a lot of the House GOP or the GOP needs to let go of this. No increasing taxes because we have to at some point if we're going to build more infrastructure within the state. Um, the only thing I'm worried about, you know, is if they take it uh, with the raising the bar initiative that passed last election. This is going to be a more difficult pull for them to get it on the ballot. But I think that if they are successful in that, um, the voters will definitely approve this. Okay, well, we'll get on to the issues this week. In an announcement on Tuesday, the Trump administration made waves following its contentious decision to end the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals policy. The program will be phased out over the next six months, giving, giving Congress time to pursue an alternative plan in the interim. At least 800,000 children have benefited from the program to date, which protects the offspring of the par of parents now living in the U.S. without legal documentation. Natasha, I think 17,000 of those kids at least are in the area now. Here in Colorado, what do you see happening locally and in Congress? Um, hopefully a lot, and, and hopefully it will not involve these children being hurt any further than they have um, this week. The thing that, that, that is truly troubling for me is that obviously this policy was flawed. It was always a workaround. It was always a temporary fix to something larger than needs to happen, which is coming up with, with co co comprehensive and cohesive immigration reform. Um, and as a result of that, that, that didn't happen for years. I mean, Congress has been unable to do that time and time and time again, which is why this policy was put in place. What disturbs me right now is this is such a political move. And the political move is a high-risk gamble where the chips on the table are these 800,000 kids and 17,000 that are, are really locally connected to us as well. That is a risk I don't want to take. These, these are people. These are, these are children who have come here who have sometimes not known the country that they, they parents were from. They they don't necessarily speak the language from the country that their parents were from. They have built an entire life here, and to have that ripped away, to have us say to them, come out of the woodwork, you come out, you get on our registers, you tell us who you are, and we will protect you, and then to take that away is, is despicable to a level that is, is truly, truly um, mind-boggling, I think, for many Americans today. So yes, I hope Congress does something. I'm just not sure it's actually going to happen. Roger, do you think Congress can do anything? And what do you think about Trump throwing it the, that ball into Congress's court? I, I knew you'd ask this that exact way to me, the Republican in the room. I, I, I got to tell you, I, I agree totally with Natasha. This was uh, badly, uh, badly formulated, formulated. It was badly presented. Uh, the history of this is bad. Uh, America, um, we owe... Uh, more to these these children than what we're doing right now. Many of them have come here, gone to school, been part of our community. Many are served in our military. Uh, that was a pathway to citizenship. Uh, you see the stories in Houston. There were a lot of paramedics. One volunteer, a hero, lost his life saving lives in Houston. Uh, they deserve better than what we did. And then what we did on top of it, when I say we, I mean Republicans, um, not only did we not collaborate, not only did we, we hold our uh, hold hostage this idea of a pathway to citizenship for the last uh, eight years, but then Donald Trump muddied the water with that tweet following. So here he's here he said, okay, I'm going to make a decision. We're all going to do it. Congress, here it's yours. We throw you the ball. And he says, well, if they can't do it, then you know, maybe in six months I'll revisit it. I just think that's unfair. Um, you know, we need more stability. I know he, he won election by being the disruptor, but at some point in time we need some stability. We need some, I'm tired, I don't know about you. One, you know, one, one more day of CNN and, and, and Fox News, I'm just exhausted. Um, this is back and forth. It just doesn't seem like it has a plan. Six months, not going to happen. Uh, I'm hoping that we find some sort of middle ground. I mean, you've got people like you know, Corey Gardner, Michael Bennett, they see the same uh, on the same page on this. Uh, Kaufman, he's also working on it. Um, and then, of course, you've got Cynthia Kaufman, who refused to join the lawsuit. So I think there's a will in Colorado. We may have to do our own in-round. 
Uh, obviously, Denver, Hancock, uh, has made some real inroads about what they will and what they won't do in uh, working with ICE. Um, so I think there's will. It just may have to happen in a different way than we've ever done it before, not on a federal level. I know it's a federal issue. We may have to deal with it ourselves here in Colorado. Eric, are there enough people who can move to the middle ground that there can be some kind of solution? Uh, one would like to think so, and yet one wouldn't bet it. Uh, the Democratic Party has moved so far left these days. The Republican Party is, as Roger would be testament to, of mixed minds on this, but the dominant wing of the Republican Party is pretty far right and pretty far intransigent on this. I start this consideration, and it's probably better television if we had some disagreement around this table, and I don't think we're going to have disagreement on this, on this particular yeah, issue. But I come at it from this fundamental principle that I learned as a child, it was impressed upon me by my parents, that you don't punish children for the conduct of the adults. Right. My parents, both being Holocaust refugees, we went back, I was a 15-year-old kid, and we went back to Germany, and my father impressed on us kids that we could not blame his peers that he was seeing again 30 years later, his classmates that he was seeing 30 years later, who are now middle-aged adults. But at the time of the madness in Germany, they had been powerless kids. And so th I think the same principle holds here. We are trying to punish kids who have really only known this country, or even if they had known another country, they were not, they did not come here willingly. That was not on their volition. They were brought here rightly or wrongly or in, under whatever circumstances by their parents. This is a high-stakes gamble, as Natasha correctly pointed out. Maybe they pull it off. I heard this on the, a news report this morning that the Koch brothers, of all people, are prepared to put major money into protecting dreamers and into a comprehensive immigration reform movement. That's one indicator. I think the pressure will be on Congress and increasingly on Congress to fix this, but it's a question of where do you find middle ground to your question, Patty, between pretty hard left and pretty hard right, and middle ground is uh, in short supply in this day and age. And Justine, I'm guessing you are not going to disagree with most of the people at this table. No, I won't disappoint anyone. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> and I will. I completely agree um, with everything everybody stated here. One thing that I find interesting, we talk a lot about like dreamers being kids, but a lot of them are my age and my peers and my colleagues that I work with who are contributing members of society, right. who are productive, who are doing things that are really helping move the American dream forward. And so it's very personal to me because these are people with family and these are people I've grown up with and I know very personally. Um, what I see here is the president had an opportunity to fulfill a campaign promise and then toss it back to Congress. Um, and right now, hopefully, I'm I think the most positive outcome could be we could possibly get a bill passed through this. I mean, I'm usually the optimist on this panel, I think, a lot of times. <laughs> but I think that maybe that will open up the dialogue that really need to happen, needed to happen because there are a lot of people in, you know, coming together on this issue on both sides. And I think as Americans, we can agree that this is not in our nature and this is not the type of country we represent. Um, so to continue, I think moving forward, hopefully we'll see some progress. Well, we'll be talking about that a lot for the next six months. But in the meantime, Lieutenant Governor Donna Lynn announced her gubernatorial campaign this week. Joining the already crowded Democratic primary, Lynn enters the race with support from current Governor John Hickenlooper, who was term limited and encouraged her to run. Roger, what do you think Donna Lynn's entry in this race means to the very crowded Democratic? You know, that's what I, and I love you asking me this question because, honestly, I don't know that it means anything. 
Um, you ask, and I did last night, I had uh, dinner with some friends, and I asked her, I said, what do you know about her? What do you know about Donna Lynn? It was a mixed crowd, it was Republicans and Democrats. Oh, well, she's, she's um, his lieutenant governor. And that was like it. It was like John Hickenlooper's you know, shadow. So uh, if you like John Hickenlooper and you like what he's done, and a lot of people do, they, I, he's, he's had some successes here in Colorado, this would be a third term for John Hickenlooper. Um, I think she shadows him, and that's the way it's been. I think she's really problematic in a couple of areas. The biggest, obviously, you in politics, you never say a never. And she said she would never run for governor. Um, if I was writing opposition work for her, I could nail her to the wall on that. That's a problem. Uh, also, because she is so opaque. And I thought John was opaque. Uh, but she is even less. She's like smoke. Um, that's either good or bad. She can either have something projected positively on her or negatively. Um, you know, she's supposed to come in and solve health care. Health care isn't solved. We're going to talk about that a little bit later, too. She was supposed to be the expert in that. Well, I see no improvement in that. Um, other than that, what do you know about her? Other than she broke a promise. Um, I think that's going to be a real problem for her in the general election. Eric, with Polis already in, with Mike Johnston in, with Noel Ginsburg in, what do you, Kara Kennedy, what's going to happen with Donna Lynn in now, too? Well, I mean, the phrase we've used so many times around this table about this primary on both sides of the aisle, Patty, is wild. And wild <laughs> just got slightly wilder with one more entrant this week. Uh, Roger talks about the only things we know about her. Well, there's one other thing that I found fascinating that came out this week, which is she has a tattoo on each shoulder. <laughs> so maybe that's the, the whole campaign sales point is our, our first tatted governor. Uh, that we know of. That we know of, exactly. <laughs> Thanks for the clarification. Uh, I do think the Democratic field is probably now set. I think the Republican field still has room for new entrants, but the Democratic field is set. It is a field of a lot of talent. I think Donna Lynn's real challenge is going to be twofold. One, can she connect? Um, no one doubts her abilities. No one doubts her brain power, her managerial mm -hmm. competence. But, 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 but can she really connect with voters outside sort of an inner circle? I'm not suggesting she can't. I think it's a, it is an untested question yet. The second is, can she get out of John Hickenlooper's shadow, take advantage of Hickenlooper's support, but move beyond that? My theory of the Colorado Democratic Party is that they've, you know, they support John Hickenlooper as governor, most Democrats, maybe not with a ton of enthusiasm, but they don't necessarily want to replace John Hickenlooper with, John, with son of, or in this case daughter of, or whatever, John Hickenlooper. They want something different. Democrats are feeling passionate and animated mm -hmm. and moving ideologically left these days. And they want somebody who makes their heart go pitter-patter, not just someone who portrays managerial competence. And I think Donna Lynn is going to be stressed and tested to sort of bridge that gap. Justine, whose hearts are going pitter-patter over which candidates? <laughs> well, from the Democratic point of view here, I think that um, I would agree with Eric that Democrats right now are looking for somebody who tugs at their heartstrings more than somebody who's good at policy. Or Personally, I, I like the idea of Adana Lynn. Um, I think that she, she's probably the best person, considering now Colorado has become kind of a model for state-structured health care and how we're going to move forward with health care. She's, you know, um, worked with Kaiser. She has a good perspective on those things. But really, I think a lot of Democrats um, coming through the primary are looking for someone who's really on the left. And Hickenlooper, we voted for Hickenlooper, but a lot of people holding their noses have done that. And I think that they want somebody who's going to be far left on a lot of issues. It's not going to be wishy-washy. So seeing her get through the Democratic primary is 
seems like it'll be a little challenging for her, but I think if she was to get the nomination, she has probably a better shot than the other candidates to get the actual election to governor. Really? Above, above Jared Polis, who has been so, like, he's a great so. campaigner. <laughs> Natasha, what do you think? Can she pull out ahead of Polis? Well, I think what the situation reminds me of right now is kind of a family dinner with, with relatives you don't see all that often, where you <laughs> sit down and have a conversation and everyone's playing nice until someone brings up a topic that might be contentious and then all of a sudden everyone has opinions. When Hickenlooper wasn't endorsing anyone, and I believe he's still not endorsing anyone specifically, but when he was sort of taking the stance of a typical Hickenlooper, I'm staying out of it, I'm not getting involved, I love everyone, it's all fine. It was going to be a very different race. Now I think that the other candidates are going to have to establish themselves as not necessarily anti-Hickenlooper, but different than Hickenlooper. And that's going to make for some very contentious discussions and much better debates. So frankly, from a media perspective, it'll be a lot more interesting for us. Um, whether that's better for Colorado or not, or better ultimately for their party, I don't know. That's, that's what's going to play out over that dining room table. Yeah, especially, let, we want those candidates to show us their tattoos, all of them. <laughs> Let's come clean. No. Speaking of Hickenlooper, Governor Hickenlooper joined a group of governors this week to testify in front of a U.S. Senate committee on stabilizing the nation's health care markets. Meanwhile, the Colorado Division of Insurance announced on Wednesday that rates will see a 27.6% premium increase in 2018. Eric, what did you think about the testimony that before the legislature. Well, I mean, this has become John Hickenlooper's issue, which would amaze a lot of people if you dial the clock back four months or six months, much less a few years, because they never saw John Hickenlooper have any particular interest in health care issues or devote much time to it. But John Hickenlooper has picked this issue to really develop and expand his national profile, and in tandem, particularly with Governor Kasich, John Kasich of Ohio, to, to, to build that, to build upon the bipartisan brand that Hickenlooper's already been famous for. I think, you know, test, congressional testimony is congressional testimony. He obviously acquitted himself fine. Did he move the needle? Probably not. You know, we're stuck with the system. The current system is broken. We can rally around Obamacare all we want. It's broken. That does not mean the Republican alternative was the right fix. I think you have a hard time even finding Republicans to make that case, much less the, pu the public at large. At some point, there has to be some kind of serious bipartisan solution, and Kasich and Hickenlooper are trying to start that debate or give fuel to, to, to that process. It, it, there's a hypocrisy to Democrats now yelling about the importance of bipartisanship here, given that Obamacare passed eight years ago without a single Republican vote in either the House or the Senate. So Democrats, when they had the power, did it in a purely partisan way. But at some point, somebody has to blink here and come to the table in a serious way, much more serious than the Lord knows Donald Trump and the White House have been capable of, and come up with some solution. But again, just like immigration, where do you find that middle ground? Democrats are moving further and further towards single-payer proposals. Republicans, Lord knows where they are on health care issues, but anything that reeks of Obamacare is toxic. I don't know where you find the middle. Justine, can you help them find the middle? <laughs> <laughs> I... Healthcare is exhausting, and it's been exhausting for us for several years now to try to find solutions to these issues. Um, you know, I would agree there are lots of issues that we need to fix with the current health care plan, with the Affordable Health Care Act, and that's, you know, those things are laid out, for example, with insurance premiums increasing here in Colorado. How do we fix the insurance companies 
and how do we fix access to health care? How do we do this? I mean, I have no idea. It's become mind-boggling. I'm happy to see them sitting down and trying to bring some bipartisan uh, resolution to all of these issues. Um, considering the last few months with the attempts to repeal and replace and all of the chaos that's been going on, I don't feel very optimistic about this particular issue and any solution moving forward. Well, Hickenlooper and Kasich certainly have played well in the media. How do you think they played before Congress? Um, probably less enthusiastic than their, their nighttime um, news, news reels um, in the previous weeks. But it's still, I think, a compelling concept. How do we move this conversation forward? And, um, you know, this may not be the answer for it, but there's no doubt in my mind that this country has to continue having this conversation. Um, one of the things I found interesting when I was looking at the Colorado rates and, and who the increase in premiums would affect, it's only about 8% of the people who have insurance in Colorado would be affected by that. So that's only 8% of the people who are sort of participating in these exchanges. More than 50% of our insured people are getting it through their employers. Now, that necessarily isn't a bad thing. Um, you know, I think a lot of people do that, obviously, more than 50% of people. But I think I've heard a uh, change in, in sort of rhetoric around this. I hear a lot of people these days talking about how staying in a job is connected to health care. And every time I hear someone complain about that, I think about, wait, isn't this what the ACA was supposed to address? Weren't we supposed to have more than 8% of people in these exchanges? Weren't these exchanges supposed to be affordable? And then you dig into the numbers a little more, and that 20-plus increase in, in, in um, premiums, the, the actual person isn't going to pay that, per se. There's credits and other things. And then I just start thinking about all those, you know, you hear about uh, a couple going into a hospital for, for a delivery, and they come out with this, you know, bill that's 30 pages long and includes these line items that they had no idea they were paying for. And I'm like, well, it starts there, and it goes all the way up to our premiums, and it goes to, to Washington, D.C. as well. This is such a mess at this point, but there's no doubt that we have to find a way to do it. So I applaud any effort bipartisan um, at any level that tries to get to the bottom of what those things are. And let's hope they come out with a baby as well as that big bill. <laughs> Roger, do you see that the Republicans can work with the Democrats to find common ground on this? Well, you know, somebody's going to be, have to be the adult in the room at some point, right? Um, I don't know that it's this president. Um, and actually, the president may be the reason the others unite to come up with a solution. Um, it really may be, truly, the thing that they all fight for or against. Uh, this president has uh, decided not to be a leader in uh, health care uh, and has actually muddied the waters to a point where now everybody's confused. Uh, we saw early on that Republicans were afraid to say anything against this president because he is so volatile on the other side. So any kind of reaching out and grabbing a hand of a, of a Democrat to try to fix Obamacare, God forbid, or uh, be able to repeal it and put something else in better uh, was not met with enthusiasm at all. Um, the Kasich-Hickenlooper plan, you know, that's, that's difficult. I, I watched the testimony. It looked like to me um, that uh, our governor was patted on the head and told to go back to Colorado. You know, thank you for playing for the big boys for a little while, but go away. Um, for the mandates to still be in this plan, it's a non-starter for Republicans. Um, that's a real problem for us. Um, so there's some issues in that plan. Um, the only reason they got any attention at all is because it was a Republican and a Democrat. I would say a Republican light and Democrat that were joining forces. Well, I'm sure we'll be hearing from both the light Republican and the Democrat again soon. But in the meantime, it's time for our favorite portion of the week. Natasha, what is your disgrace? It hasn't quite happened yet, but there are hints. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos this week talked about changing some of the rules regarding Title IX and sexual assault on campus and how we... Um, 
deal with that issue. She said it was, quote, a failed system. The real failure to me is that one in five women will be sexually assaulted in college, one in 16 men will be sexually assaulted in college, and more than 90% of those crimes will go unreported. Any sort of conversation like this that creates a chilling effect on people who report or who feel uncomfortable reporting these sexual assaults is a true failure. Roger? I have to say, and I'm, I'm going to go against my party here, I, I have to say that tweet from Donald Trump uh, after putting so much, uh, so much air between himself and uh, the Dreamers um, and then to, to muddy the waters even more when we might have had some sort of momentum happening at the, at the congressional level now that you've ripped off the Band-Aid, let's fix it, um, to once again uh, cause disruption. Um, I, I, was, I was really taken aback by that. I was hoping we would be able to solve this in one way or the other. It was going to be painful. Can we just be painful once? But now we're going to have to be painful for six months. And, and have many more disgrace discussions. Many more. Eric. How about Equifax? A hack. Oh. Yeah. Only 143 million Americans, not to mention Europeans, Canadians, Mexicans, etc. But 143 million Americans, that's darn close to one in two Americans affected by this hack. And to make it even worse, Equifax found out about this in late July, withheld disclosure of it for six weeks, and in the course of those six weeks, some of their senior managers sold nearly $2 million of their stock uh, before the disclosure. Very disgraceful. Justine. Everyone took every disgrace I had on my mind today. But I think I'll second um, Donald Trump. I marched with Dreamers from North High School at the uh, rallies that they had on Tuesday down to Rary Campus. And to see a lot of those kids come out and be very fearful and see their lives be put into turmoil on, you know, uncertainty from the president was really, really disgraceful for me to see this week and really, really tugged at a lot of people's heartstrings to see these kids worry like that. And it was very unfair. Very tough week. Okay, something nice very quickly. There's a group called the Junior White Roses. It's kids aged 7 to 13. They meet together and talk about racism, sexism, and things that bother them about the world. Um, I think they probably do it better than adults. <laughs> I'm sure they do. Roger. Very quick. Ski season. I smell snow in the air. Okay, Eric. Quickly, reaching across the table, my friend Natasha Gardner embedded herself in Roots Elementary School, a charter school in North Park Hill, in which I'm involved. She embedded herself there for two years, wrote a wonderful feature story in the most recent issue of 5280. Viewers, go online and get it or read it in 5280. Great. Justine? And all the higher ed institutions in Colorado that came out this week in support of DACA students which was great. That's all the time we have for this edition of Colorado Inside Out. As always, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter for CIO segments, past and present. You can also find our podcast on iTunes and Google Play. For everyone here at Colorado Public Television, I'm Patricia Calhoun. Thanks for watching, and good night.